This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. July 2007. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas de Quincey. Joan of Arc, Part 3. It is not requisite for the honour of Joanna, nor is there in this place room to pursue her brief career of action. That, though wonderful, forms the earthly part of her story. The intellectual part is the saintly passion of her imprisonment, trial, and execution. It is unfortunate, therefore, for Southey's Joan of Arc, which, however, should always be regarded as a juvenile effort, that precisely when her real glory begins, the poem ends. But this limitation of the interest grew, no doubt, from the constraint inseparably attached to the law of epic unity. Joanna's history bisects into two opposite hemispheres, and both could not have been presented to the eye in one poem, unless by sacrificing all unity of theme, or else by involving the earlier half as a narrative episode in the latter. This might have been done. It might have been communicated to a fellow-prisoner or a confessor by Joanna herself, in the same way that Virgil has contrived to acquaint the reader, through the hero's mouth, with earlier adventures that, if told by the poet speaking in his own person, would have destroyed the unity of his fable. The romantic interest of the early and irrelate incidents, last night of Troy, etc., is thrown as an affluent into the general river of the personal narrative, whilst yet the capital current of the epos, as unfolding the origin and incunubula of Rome, is not for a moment suffered to be modified by events so subordinate and so obliquely introduced. It is sufficient, as concerns this section of Joanna's life, to say that she fulfilled, to the height of her promises, the restoration of the prostrate throne. France had become a province of England, and for the ruin of both, if such a yoke could be maintained. Dreadful pecuniary exhaustion caused the English energy to droop, and that critical opening, La Pucelle, used with a corresponding felicity of audacity and suddenness, that were in themselves portentous, for introducing the wedge of French native resources, for rekindling the national pride, and for planting the Dauphin once more upon his feet. When Joanna appeared, he had been on the point of giving up the struggle with the English, distressed as they were, and of flying to the south of France. She taught him to blush for such abject counsels. She liberated Orléans, that great city, so decisive by its fate for the issue of the war, and then beleaguered by the English, with an elaborate application of engineering skill, unprecedented in Europe. Entering the city after sunset, on the twenty-ninth of April, she sang mass on Sunday, May 8th, for the entire disappearance of the besieging force. On the twenty-ninth of June, she fought and gained over the English the decisive battle of Pate. On the ninth of July, she took Troy by a coup de main, from a mixed garrison of English and Burgundians. On the fifteenth of that month, she carried the Dauphin into Riem. On Sunday the seventeenth, she crowned him, and there she rested from her labor of triumph. What remained was to suffer. All this forward movement was her own, 
excepting one man, the whole council was against her. Her enemies were all that drew power from earth. Her supporters were her own strong enthusiasm, and the headlong contagion by which she carried this sublime frenzy into the hearts of women, of soldiers, and of all who lived by labor. Henceforwards she was thwarted, and the worst error that she committed was to lend the sanction of her presence to councils which she disapproved. But she had accomplished the capital objects which her own visions had dictated. These involved all the rest. Errors were now less important, and doubtless it had now become more difficult for herself to pronounce authentically what were errors. The noble girl had achieved, as by a rapture of motion, the capital end of clearing out a free space around her sovereign, giving him the power to move his arms with effect, and secondly, the inappreciable end of winning for that sovereign what seemed to all France the heavenly ratification of his rights by crowning him with the ancient solemnities. She had made it impossible for the English now to step before her. They were caught in an irretrievable blunder. Owing partly to discord amongst the uncles of Henry the Sixth, partly to a want of funds, but partly to the very impossibility which they believed to press with tenfold force upon any French attempt to forestall theirs. They laughed at such a thought, and whilst they laughed, she did it. Henceforth, the single redress for the English of this capital oversight, but which never could have redressed it effectually, was to vitiate and taint the coronation of Charles the Seventh as the work of a witch. That policy, and not malice, as Monsieur Michelet is so happy to believe, was the moving principle in the subsequent prosecution of Joanna. Unless they unhinged the force of the first coronation in the popular mind, by associating it with power given from hell, they felt that the sceptre of the invader was broken. But she, the child that, at nineteen, had wrought wonders so great for France, was she not elated? Did she not lose, as men so often have lost, all sobriety of mind when standing upon the pinnacle of successes so giddy? Let her enemies declare. During the progress of her movement, and in the centre of ferocious struggles, she had manifested the temper of her feelings by the pity which she had everywhere expressed for the suffering enemy. She forwarded to the English leaders a touching invitation to unite with the French, as brothers, in a common crusade against infidels, thus opening the road for a soldierly retreat. She interposed to protect the captive or the wounded. She mourned over the excesses of her countrymen. She threw herself off her horse to kneel by the dying English soldier, and to comfort him with such ministrations, physical or spiritual, as his situation allowed. Quote, Nolabat, says the evidence, Uti onso suo, ot quem quam interficieri. She sheltered the English that invoked her aid in her own quarters. She wept as she beheld, stretched on the field of battle, so many brave enemies that had died without confession. And, as regarded herself, her elation expressed itself thus. On the day when she had finished her work, she wept, for she knew that, when her task was done, her end must be approaching. Her aspirations pointed only to a place which seemed to her more than usually full of natural piety, as one in which it would give her pleasure to die. And she uttered, between smiles and tears, as a wish that inexpressibly fascinated her heart, and yet was half fantastic, 
a broken prayer that God would return her to the solitudes from which he had drawn her, and suffer her to become a shepherdess once more. It was a natural prayer, because nature has laid a necessity upon every human heart to seek for rest, and to shrink from torment. Yet, again, it was a half-fantastic prayer, because, from childhood upwards, visions that she had no power to mistrust, and the voices which sounded in her ear for ever, had long since persuaded her mind, that for her no such prayer could be granted. Too well she felt that her mission must be worked out to the end, and that the end was now at hand. All went wrong from this time. She herself had created the funds out of which the French restoration should grow, but she was not suffered to witness their development, or their prosperous application. More than one military plan was entered upon which she did not approve, but she still continued to expose her person as before. Severe wounds had not taught her caution, and at length in a sortie from Compiègne, whether through treacherous collusion on the part of her own friends is doubtful to this day, she was made prisoner by the Burgundians, and finally surrendered to the English. Now came her trial. This trial, moving of course under English influence, was conducted in chief by the Bishop of Beauvais. He was a Frenchman, sold to English interests, and hoping, by favour of the English leaders, to reach the highest preferment. Bishop that art, Archbishop that shalt be, Cardinal that mayest be, were the words that sounded continually in his ear, and, doubtless, a whisper of visions still higher, of a triple crown, and feet upon the necks of kings, sometimes stole into his heart. Monsieur Michelet is anxious to keep us in mind that this bishop was but an agent of the English. True. But it does not better the case for his countrymen, that, being an accomplice in the crime, making himself the leader in the persecution against the helpless girl, he was willing to be all this in the spirit, and with the conscious vileness of a cat's paw. Never from the foundations of the earth was there such a trial as this, if it were laid open in all its beauty of defence, and all its hellishness of attack. O oh, child of France, shepherdess, peasant girl, trodden under foot by all around thee, how I honour thy flashing intellect, quick as God's lightning, and true as that lightning to its mark, that ran before France and laggard Europe by many a century, confounding the malice of the ensnarer, and making dumb the oracles of falsehood. It is not scandalous, it is not humiliating to civilization, that even at this day France exhibits the horrid spectacle of judges examining the prisoner against himself, seducing him by fraud into treacherous conclusions against his own head, using the terrors of their power for extorting confessions from the frailty of hope. Nay, which is worse, using the blandishments of condescension and snaky kindness, for thawing into compliances of gratitude those whom they had failed to freeze into terror? Wicked judges, barbarian jurisprudence, that, sitting on your own conceit on the summits of social wisdom, have yet failed to learn the first principles of criminal justice, sit ye humbly and with docility at the feet of this girl from Domeremi, that tore your webs of cruelty into shreds and dust, Quote, would you examine me as a witness against myself? Unquote, was the question by which many times she defied their arts. Continually she showed that their interrogations were irrelevant to any business before the court, or that entered into the ridiculous charges against her. 
General questions were proposed to her on points of causistical divinity, two-edged questions which not one of themselves could have answered without, on the one side, landing himself in heresy, as then interpreted, or, on the other, in some presumptuous expression of self-esteem. Next came a wretched Dominican that pressed her with an objection, which, if applied to the Bible, would tax every one of its miracles with unsoundness. The monk had the excuse of never having read the Bible. Monsieur Michelet has no such excuse, and it makes one blush for him, as a philosopher, to find him describing such an argument as weighty, whereas it is but a varied expression of rude Mahometan metaphysics. Her answer to this, if there were room to place the whole in a clear light, was as shattering as it was rapid. Another thought to entrap her, by asking what language the angelic visitors of her solitude had talked, as though heavenly counsels could want polyglot interpreters for every word, or that God needed language at all in whispering thoughts to a human heart. Then came a worse devil, who asked her whether the archangel Michael had appeared naked, not comprehending the vile insinuation, Joanna, whose poverty suggested to her simplicity that it might be the costliness or suitable robes which caused the demure, asked them if they fancied God, who clothed the flowers of the valleys, unable to find raiment for his servants. The answer of Joanna moves a smile of tenderness, but the disappointment of her judges makes one laugh horribly. Others succeeded by troops, who upbraided her with leaving her father, as if that greater father, whom she believed herself to have been serving, did not retain the power of dispensing with his own rules, or had not said that, for a less cause than martyrdom, man and woman should leave both father and mother. On Easter Sunday, when the trial had been long proceeding, the poor girl fell so ill as to cause a belief that she had been poisoned. It was not poison. Nobody had any interest in hastening a death so certain— Monsieur Michelet, whose sympathies with all feelings are so quick that one would gladly see them always as justly directed, reads the case most truly. Joanna had a twofold malady. She was visited by a paroxysm of the complaint called homesickness. The cruel nature of her imprisonment and its length could not but point her solitary thoughts in darkness and in chains, for chained she was, to Domremy and the season, which was the most heavenly period of the spring, adds stings to this yearning. That was one of her maladies, nostalgia, as medicine calls it. The other was weariness and exhaustion from daily combats with malice. She saw that everybody hated her, and thirsted for her blood, nay, many kind-hearted creatures that would have pitied her profoundly, as regarded all political charges, had their natural feelings warped by the belief that she had dealings with fiendish powers. She knew she was to die, that was not the misery. The misery was that this consummation could not be reached without so much intermediate strife, as if she were contending for some chance, where chance was none, of happiness, or were dreaming for a moment of escaping the inevitable. Why, then, did she contend? Knowing that she would reap nothing from answering her persecutors, why did she not retire by silence from the superfluous contest? It was because her quick and eager loyalty to truth would not suffer her to see it darkened by frauds, which she could expose, but others, even of candid listeners, perhaps, could not. 
It was through that imperishable grandeur of soul which taught her to submit meekly and without a struggle to her punishment, but taught her not to submit, no, not for a moment, to calumny as to facts, or to misconstruction as to motives. Besides, there were secretaries all around the court taking down her words. That was meant for no good to her. But the end does not always correspond to the meaning. And Joanna might say to herself, These words that will be used against me tomorrow and the next day, perhaps in some nobler generation, may rise again for my justification. Yes, Joanna, they are rising even now in Paris, and for more than justification. Woman, sister, there are some things which you do not execute as well as your brother, man. No, nor ever will. Pardon me if I doubt whether you will ever produce a great poet from your choirs, or a Mozart, or a Phidias, or a Michelangelo, or a great philosopher, or a great scholar. By which last is meant, not one who depends simply on an infinite memory, but also on an infinite and electrical power of combination, bringing together from the four winds, like the angel of the resurrection, what else were dust from dead man's bones, into the unity of breathing life. If you can create yourselves into any of these great creators, why have you not? Do not ask me to say otherwise, because if you do, you will lead me into temptation. For I swore early in life never to utter a falsehood, and above all, a sycophantic falsehood, and in the false homage of the modern press towards women there is horrible sycophancy. It is as hollow, most of it, and it is as fleeting as is the love that lurks in uxoriousness. Yet if a woman asks me to tell a falsehood, I have long made up my mind that on moral considerations I will and ought to do so, whether it be for any purpose of glory to her, or of screening her foibles, for she does commit a few, or of humbly as a vassal, paying a peppercorn rent to her august privilege of caprice. Barring these cases, I must adhere to my resolution of telling no fibs, and I repeat, therefore, but not to be rude, I repeat in Latin, Excudent ali melius spirantia signa, credo iquidem vivos ducent, de marmor vultus, altius ascendent, atucaput eva memento, sendalo ut infringas referenti oracula tanta. Footnote. Our sisters are always rather uneasy when we say anything of them in Latin or Greek. It is like giving sealed orders to a sea captain, which he is not to open for his life till he comes to a certain latitude, which latitude, perhaps, he never will come into, and thus may miss the secret till he is going to the bottom. Generally I acknowledge that it is not polite before our female friends to cite a single word of Latin without instantly translating it. But in this particular case, where I am only iterating a disagreeable truth, they will please to recollect that the politeness lies in not translating. However, if they insist absolutely on knowing this very night, before going to bed, what it is that those ill-looking lines contain, I refer them to Dryden's Virgil, somewhere in the sixth book of the Aeneid, except as to the closing line and a half, which contain a private suggestion of my own, to discontented nymphs, anxious to see the equilibrium of advantages re-established between the two sexes. End footnote. Yet, sister woman, though I cannot consent to find a Mozart or a Michelangelo in your sex, 
until that day when you claim my promise as to falsehood, cheerfully and with the love that burns in depths of admiration, I acknowledge that you can do one thing as well as the best of us men, a greater thing than even Mozart is known to have done, or Michelangelo. You can die grandly, and as goddesses would die were goddesses mortal. If any distant world, which may be the case, are so far ahead of us, Tellurians in optical resources, as to see distinctly through their telescopes all that we do on earth, which is the grandest sight to which we ever treat them. St. Peter's at Rome, do you fancy? On Easter Sunday? Or Luxor? Or perhaps the Himalayas? Pooh-pooh, my friend. Suggest something better. These are baubles to them. They see in other worlds, in their own, far better toys of the same kind. These, take my word for it, are nothing. Do you give it up? The finest thing, then, we have to show them is a scaffold on the morning of execution. I assure you there is a strong muster in those fair telescopic worlds. On any such morning of those who happen to find themselves occupying the right hemisphere for a peep at us. Telescopes look up in the market on that morning, and bear a monstrous premium, for they cheat, probably, in those scientific worlds as well as we do. How, then, if it be announced in such how then, if it be announced in some such telescopic world, by those who make a livelihood of catching glimpses at our newspapers, whose language they have long since deciphered, that the poor victim in the morning's sacrifice is a woman? How, if it be published on that distant world, that the sufferer wears upon her head, in the eyes of many, the garlands of martyrdom? How, if it should be some Marie Antoinette, the widowed queen, coming forward on the scaffold, and presenting to the morning air her head, turned grey prematurely by sorrow, daughter of Caesar's, kneeling down humbly to kiss the guillotine, as one that worships death? How, if it were, the martyred wife of Roland, uttering impassioned truth, truth odious to the rulers of her country, with her expiring breath? How, if it were the noble Charlotte Corday, that in the bloom of youth, that with the loveliest of persons, that with homage waiting upon her smiles, wherever she turned her face to scatter them, homage that followed those smiles, as surely as the carols of birds, after showers in spring, follow the reappearing sun, and the racing of sunbeams over the hills, yet thought all these things cheaper than the dust upon her sandals, in comparison of deliverance from hell for her dear suffering France? Ah! These were spectacles indeed for those sympathizing people in distant worlds, and some, perhaps, would suffer a sort of martyrdom themselves, because they could not testify their wrath, could not bear witness to the strength of love, and to the fury of hatred that burned within them at such scenes, could not gather into golden urns some of that glorious dust which rested in the catacombs of earth. End of Joan of Arc, Part 3